Our scripture reading for the sermon today is from Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 through 55. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages Ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. 
But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? And let, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, and that they may decide between us too. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar and said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. But Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. 
the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we simply lift up our hearts now to you, having heard uh, this word uh, read in your presence and with your people. In the next few minutes, as we explore it together, we need the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to meet with us and for him to make plain to our hearts that which you would have us to know. We are wholly dependent upon you. In that dependence, be mindful that we are but dust. And apart from you, we cannot see, behold, learn, inwardly digest or obey that which you would teach us in this word. But with you, all things are possible. So, Father, hear this petition and according to your wisdom, answer it by your spirit's strength. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's a long passage. It's a long passage. Maybe one of the lengthiest of the stories that we see anywhere in the writings of Genesis, especially in the stories of, of Jacob, a, an up and down, back and forth kind of story, one that you have come to expect if you've been following Jacob at all up to this point, it's going to be harder than you expect to get home because everything with Jacob is a little bit harder than you expect and this story is no different. There's many questions we can ask ourselves as we approach a text like this, but for the sake of our time, I think one particular question, which is, I think, the lead question and best question that we can ever ask when we initially approach the Word of God. It's the question, what does this text tell us about God? What does this text tell us about God? Now, to ask the question that way is to work against our natural tendencies when we approach the Scriptures. When we approach the Scriptures, the initial question we want to ask ourselves is, what does this text have to do with me? What does this text have to do with my life? We've got household gods being stolen and, and treks on the way home and goats mating that are striped and spotted and mottled. This has nothing to do with my life. It's very easy for us to kind of fall into a pattern of asking that as the lead and primary question, which just tells us we're very full of ourselves. Because the real question we need to be asking is, what does this text tell us about God? And it tells us so much about God. So much about God. There are four things specifically we want to explore in this text relating to the question, what does this text tell us about God? The first thing that it tells us is that our God is a God who provides. Our God is a God who provides. 
Now, last week, I didn't have the privilege of being here and sitting under uh, the message last week, but did get a chance to listen to it uh, online. And you will likely remember the fact that uh, Jacob has grown in his wealth. He's grown in his prosperity. Uh, He has been blessed immensely by the Lord. As we look at it in the course of this passage, we now actually understand, kind of pulling back the curtains as this passage does, why it is and how it is that Jacob is blessed. How did he get such a large flock? How did his wealth grow so immensely? Well, we see that God did it. God appeared to Jacob in a dream and he actually explained to him what it is that he was doing to increase Jacob's wealth. He says, I know that Laban continues to change her wages. I know that he's slippery and deceitful and that when he sees that the goats are breeding and in their breeding they have striped goats rather than than spotted goats, he's going to make the spotted goats your wage and he's going to keep the striped ones. But then when things change, he's going to change your wage and he recognizes that each time that he does that, his wages are higher than Laban's ever are. And the the goats wind up having exactly the kind of goats that would be connected to the wages of of Jacob. And so he switches uh, the whole playing field. He changes the contract. Over and over, God saw what it was that Laban was up to, trying to impoverish Jacob and to increase his own wealth. And the Lord constantly changed the setting constantly changed the way it unfolded, and he would simply give to Jacob that which was due to his wage. It was a picture of God working behind the scenes, um, working against and despite Laban, who thinks he's in charge, setting the contract, setting the wages, but God saying, no, I'm actually in charge of the kind of goats I want to produce and bring forth. The Lord is the one who is providing for Jacob. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Because it's a reminder of the fact that this moment in Jacob's life is not the easiest. He doesn't look back on these moments with Laban and think, I mean, it was sunshine and roses all of the time. Things were just humming along, so peaceful. It was a fantastic season of life. No, this this is a time full of strife full of conflict. We've seen that in the last several chapters as we've been exploring the details of Jacob's life. And yet in the midst of all of that conflict, challenge, and strife, what is God doing? He's providing for Jacob. When the world, when Laban is trying to manipulate the circumstances to impoverish him, God is changing the circumstances by which to give him wealth. Here's one of the beauties of our God. Is we usually think of, of blessing and difficulty as antithetical to one another. We tend to think of them as opposed to one another. When we actually look at how things are unfolding here uh, for Jacob, we realize that God actually uses strife and difficulty. He uses the challenges that we face in the world by which to bless us. As you look back over the course of your life, how often have the greatest blessings in your life actually manifest themselves during the most difficult times of your life? That side by side, those two things are growing up together. And it's often a sign of God's great work when we're in the midst of conflict and difficulty and we see him producing all kinds of blessings. We would have never choose the path that he chose 
But the path that he chose was a means by which to bring about blessing. It shows us his sovereignty. It shows us his power. It shows us his care. It shows us his love. That right in the midst of heartache and even in the midst of injustice, he's accomplishing his good purposes for the blessing of his people. Now we should know this, believers in Christ. Because what is the greatest blessing that we have? Christ and his work for us on the cross. What is the cross? A moment of incredible pain, suffering, and injustice. At the very center of our faith is this act of injustice. A holy God who's perfectly righteous being crucified at the hands of sinful men on trumped up charges. And what is God doing? Blessing the world. Saving the world in and through it all. It just tells us that the will of man is not in control of its outcomes. That there is a will that is greater than the will of man and he will accomplish that which he has set his heart and mind to. Our God has chosen to bless his people. He will indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We, we see in the first place in this beautiful passage the fact that God is the one who provides for his people. But we see secondly that God is the director of his people. He gives direction. He doesn't leave us aimless. Now, you could have predicted, couldn't you, that the wealth of Jacob was going to cause problems. As soon as you heard it last week, if you were here, and you begin to see that Jacob is, his wealth is amassing at a degree that is superseding that of Laban, you could see on the horizon, things are not going to go well. Well, sure enough, as this passage opens, we have the, the sons of Laban speaking to one another. And what are they doing? Complaining. Out of jealousy, out of greed, out of envy. And they say, listen, this son-in-law, this, this, uh, this brother-in-law of ours is, is taking from our father all the wealth that is rightfully his. The language is strong. It's not just a matter of complaint. They're actually raising suspicion that he must be doing something. He must be up to no good. Thievery, swindling, stealing, whatever it is that's happened. He's taking all of our father's wealth. It's not right. Now, if you can hear it, these are sons. And they're looking at the son-in-law. And they're noticing that the son-in-law is getting a lot richer than the father, which means they, as the sons, the inheritors of their father's estate, are getting poorer. This is personal. This is not just a little jealousy. This is the fact that they're realizing the nest egg that they had hoped to get from their father is diminishing. And the one who is actually going to is Jacob. So this complaint, this accusation driven by greed, driven by jealousy, we see is now causing all kinds of disruption. On top of this, Jacob now looks into the face of Laban and we're told in verse 2 that Laban did not have regard for him, that is Jacob, did not have the favor that he had for him before, that he had for him, that he has for him now. His face, as it were, is turning against him. Now, if you're reading that and you've been following the story, you think, when was, this, when was he favoring him? Like, I, I, don't, I, I think I missed that in the text. There was never a point where I, I could see that he was actually favoring him. Well, we'll read what is actually intended in the language of favor. There was a time when Laban saw Jacob as resourceful and useful. 
He, he, had, he was strong. He was providing. He was hardworking. He, Laban's own flock was increasing. And now over the last six years, the tide has changed. And Jacob is the one who's becoming rich through the wages. And now as Laban looks at him, he doesn't look at him with so much favor. He looks at him as a threat. He looks at him as a competitor. So if you can see it this way, he's hearing an, overhearing a conversation where he knows he's fallen out of favor with the sons, and he sees the face of Laban. That's literally the Hebrew. He sees that his face has turned away from him. He sees the face of Laban, and he sees something different in his eyes. And he knows bad things are on the horizon. That's the scripture's way of telling us that, that Laban is beginning to turn against in a completely different way than he has in the past, Jacob. He's, he's, he's acknowledging the fact that this is a season of which now the relationship between Laban and Jacob, as tenuous as it has been, is about to get even worse. And of course, this is where you see God's kindness. Verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Don't you love this? In the moment where he's hearing the, the gossip and the jealousy and the greed between the two brothers and seeing on the face of Laban that the whole context is collapsing around him, God's face shows up. When the world's turning against him, God's face shows up. And God doesn't come uh, merely as a presence that's in the background in this moment. He comes as one to give instruction, command, and direction. Here's how you should go, Jacob. Return to the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. Laban's not with you. His sons aren't with you. Nobody's with you. I'm with you. Return to the land of your fathers. Now, when he spoke that, when God spoke that, if I can get inside, if this is appropriate to do, get inside the head of Jacob for a second, he had to have remembered Genesis 28. Not that Genesis 28 was written, but that he would remember that stairway from heaven. You may remember that stairway from heaven. When he laid his head, that is Jacob, on a rock, and he had a vision and he saw the angels ascending and descending on that staircase. And he saw the Lord at the foot of that staircase. And he heard the Lord speak these words. Behold, I am with you, Jacob. I will bring you back to this land. This is the land of his fathers. Now, 20 years have gone by since he heard those words in Genesis 28. I know, just remember, we've just turned a few pages in the Bible, but we've turned 20 years. In turning those 20 years, we've now come to a place where God is saying, remember the promise I made to you? Remember the promise I made to you when the stairway from heaven was opened up? I said I'd be with you, and I said that I would bring you back to the land of your forefathers. Verse 3, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. It's a reminder, friends, that God's promises do not have expiration dates. That's a beautiful thing. If God has said something, you don't have to worry that he's going to unsay it or he's going to forget about it. When he says it, even if 20 years go by, it's as good as if he had said it just 30 seconds ago. It's as fresh and it's real. Our God doesn't forget. 
what it is that he says. He doesn't forget those in whom he has set his love, and he will accomplish everything that he has set out to accomplish. Now, how important is that for us? As a people who are waiting, as a people who labor, wanting to go home, as a people who look to the horizon for the home that is promised that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and we wonder, it's been several thousand years since those words have been spoken. How important is that? When you think, well, if it had only been 20 years, I'm, I might have been okay. It's been several thousand. Well, let me give you a couple of other statistics in the Bible. While in exile, Israel waited 100 years for Babylon to be destroyed in the way that God had prophesied. Uh, Caleb waited 50 years before the promises of God were fulfilled for them to enter the promised land in Numbers 14. But Abraham waited 2,000 years before he would see the fulfillment of his promises with regards uh, to the blessing that would extend to all of the families of the earth. We might go so far as to say Eve waited a lot longer than that. In Genesis 3.15, when we were told that the seed that will come forth from her will crush the head of the serpent. We're, it actually would be difficult to even figure up how long of a period of time it had been since Genesis chapter 3 to the point of Jesus being crucified on the cross. Thousands of years, but God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises and he will direct us along his pathways. You know what often gets us in trouble? We were talking about this Monday, Monday night when some of us gathered here to discuss that beautiful book by Wendell Berry, Hannah Coulter. We talked about the difference between hope and expectations. It's often very easy for us when we hear a promise from the Lord to set a certain, a certain expectation about what that's going to mean. You know, if God said it, then it'll probably happen about this long and about this way, and just how I'm imagining it right now. And what happens is, is not the problem with God's word or the hope in the promise of that word. It's the way we often expect it to happen on our timeline, or in our way, or according to our fashion. And the expectations is what gets us in trouble. Because we have inputted our own imaginings into the promises of God. And you know what often happens then? We start questioning God's promises. And the problem was never his promises. The problem was your expectations of his promises. See the difference? That's what happens over and over and over again. And that's when we become forgetful or doubtful about God. But we have seen throughout the scriptures that sometimes by his grace, it takes thousands of years for those promises to be fulfilled. And you think to yourself, well, why does he take so long? He tells us, he tells us in 2 Peter, he says, don't count the slowness of God's promises as men count slowness. Men, women, don't count slowness of God's promises in that way. He's, he's slow according to your perspective because he is patient and he wishes that none would perish but all would come to eternal life. You see, he's slow in the way that you would count slow because he loves us. He's patient with us. He's patient with us. He's wooing us by his love deeper into more profound trust of his promises. Not only do we see God's provision and God's direction in this passage, but we also see God's protection. We see God's protection in this passage. We were told last week in the passage that we looked at that Laban and Jacob, who had, had some you know, tension in the relationship 
have now separated from one another a three days journey. So it's not as if they saw each other all of the time or were right upon one another as families often are. He had separated now from Jacob a three days journey, which makes this passage important because there's a little space between them, which means this might be a good time to bolt because Laban's not around. In addition to that, we're told in verse 19 that there's a huge task that Laban has taken up. It's called the shearing of the sheep. Now, we run past that pretty quickly, but if you read on ancient Near Eastern history about the nature of sheep shearing, this was a multi-day task for those who were sheep herders in the ancient Near East. It was an outside task, usually done in the springtime, that would take days on end uh, to be able to accomplish. What this means is at the point of this text, when God comes to Jacob, return to the land of your forefathers and I will be with you, he comes at a time where there's already space and Laban has committed himself to a huge job. He's otherwise focused. And we also read in the text that Rachel and Leah are 100% behind Jacob. You know that had to be a little nervous, that conversation. Rachel and Leah have spent their whole lives right there with Laban, their father, and right there in that land. They've never gone anywhere. Jacob is the one who is transplanted here. And as he comes to them and he describes the vision that God gave them and he persuades them that God is leading us to to go and now is the time to be able to make a journey. We see that Rachel and Leah are are eager. They've seen the deception of the father. They actually refer to themselves as those who are treated more like slaves than like daughters. They recognize the, the wickedness. And they said, because God's vision has told us this, we should go, we should do this. They're, they're ready to hit the road, and so they do in verse 17. And three days later, he's three days apart um, in terms of distance. Three days later, we're told that Laban hears of this. And as soon as he hears from this, what does he do? He gathers himself as kinsmen. He gathers his comrades. You might hear him you might hear the language of he gathers a militia because that was the language. The language of the text is he gathers them, they pitch their tents, they pursue, even hotly pursue Jacob and they are ready to come in and to stop him from going all the way back home and if they need to do so, they're going to do so by force. This is not some gentle persuasion that's in view. They're not going to show up and say, Jacob, can we sit down and have some tea and think this over? Now, this was, this was a military action. And what do we see God do? Well, God in his kindness intervenes. In verse 24 of our text, it's the first time that we see God communicate with Laban in the context of this passage. He says to Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. God, this... This faithful God who has promised to Jacob, I'll be with you and I'm going to lead you home, now deals with a threat, a military threat, in the midst of their travels home. And he says, not only am I going to give you direction for how it is that you're going to get home or where it is you're going to go, I'm going to give you protection on the whole journey as you go home. See, this is why I think Genesis 28 is so important. So important. The passage where God's vision is given to Jacob. Because when he promises to him, he doesn't simply promise, I'm going to bring you home and I'm going to be with you. He says this, 
I will keep you wherever it is that you go. That language of keep is the Hebrew word for preserve. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to be for you a shield, a protector. There are going to be those who come and try to attack you. I'm going to stand in the way. I will be a shield about you. Now, it's not surprising. As God protects him, as Laban receives this vision, Laban still shows up and does what? Goes on and on about the hurt that he has experienced through all of this. It's terrible. Why would you trick me and run away? Why didn't you let me say goodbye to my grandchildren and to my wives or to your wives, my daughters, whom I have clearly shown such love for? I would have thrown the biggest party you can imagine with lyres and harps and, and we would have killed, as it were, the fattened calf for you in order to send you off with, with blessing, but you didn't give me a chance to do any of that. And we were reading the text and you're going, this man is full of it because he is. He is. You see the fangs come out a little bit in verse 29, don't you? It is in my power to do you harm. Oh, there it is. Yep. <laughs> there it is. There's the threat. We knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. All this victimhood now pushing shame towards Jacob and then immediately reminding him of the fact I'm here with a small militia to be able to stop you by force. But then he says, listen, your God, the God of your father, came to me, told me, intervened not to say anything good or bad to you, Jacob. So I'm not going to harm you. Because as Laban had recognized in the previous passage, God's hand was upon Jacob. And to touch God's anointed was to undoubtedly bring curses upon yourself. He was fearful of that. He was not going to harm. He knew God was protecting Jacob. But he didn't have a question for him. He says, why did you steal my gods? Now at this point in the narrative, we've almost forgotten. Oh yeah, Rachel stole the, stole the gods. That's a weird note. In verse 19, she, she takes the household gods as, as Laban is being tricked by Jacob and they're taking off. She decides to collect the household gods and, and take off with them as they go about on their journey. Interestingly, the scripture doesn't tell us why she does it, which is what's in your mind and my mind. Why does she take the household gods? We're wondering, maybe she's still a polytheist. Maybe she's still following the, the gods of her, of her father. And she's not truly a follower of the God of Jacob at this point, except that everything in the text seems to point differently. Especially when, when Jacob unfolds for Leah and Rachel what it is that God has said. They said, we must do what God has told us. And they're right in line with Jacob. There's no indication anywhere else in the text that that's the case. We wonder, what is she up to? Maybe some have conjectured she's, she's kind of getting at her father a little bit. Taking the things that he has trusted in. And she, if you will, has taken capture of his gods. Maybe it's a polemic against those gods, those false gods that Laban had followed. Fact of the matter is, we don't know. 
Anything that we would draw a strict conclusion on would be conjecture. In fact, the Bible doesn't entertain this itch in our mind to get the answer for it. Instead, it focuses upon the unfolding of the circumstance of what actually happens in the context of the passage. As soon as Laban raises the questions about why did you steal my gods, Jacob, feeling pretty strong here with some integrity and some with boldness, says, we didn't take your gods. Anyone in, anyone in our midst who took your gods, if we find that they're here, let them die. And we as readers are like, oh no. Because Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has taken the gods. She didn't have the wisdom to tell Jacob, hey, by the way, I brought the gods with me. <laughs> We're going to get a kick out of that, aren't we? And, uh, he has no idea at this point. So this is a, a turning point in the midst of the text. And we as readers, our blood pressure rises a little bit. Our, our pulse rate goes up. And he says, basically, my wife is under the death penalty. And he has no idea he's saying that. Laban searches the tent of, of Leah, no idols. He, he searches the tent of Jacob, no, no idols. He searches the maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, no, no idols. And the text just continues to create tension as he finally goes to the tent of Rachel. And what we learn is that Jacob and Rachel are a really good match. Because she's as slippery as Jacob is here. A trickster. She has placed those idols, these, these small figurines. There's actually a very particular word that's used with regards to these idols. These small household idols. Not the kind of idols you would use in the temple. Probably the kind of idols that would, you would pay homage to in order to gain prosperity or fertility or, or, or something of the like. She puts them in the little saddlebag that would have been on the camels, and then she sits on them. As he comes in, Rachel pipes up, and she says, Oh, my Lord, be, be not angry with me that I, I cannot rise. Uh, you, you know in my heart I would, I would want to rise and to show you all the respect that you're due. But I, I can't in this moment for the way of Women is upon me. And we as readers are going, boy, 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 boy. She's good. She's good. Laban roots around the entirety of the tent. But of course, he leaves Rachel alone. As she is there reclining. And yet underneath her the whole time are his gods. Interestingly, the text continues. Jacob feeling vindicated, having been falsely accused, but not really, of taking these gods. He now launches into the longest speech that we gain anywhere with Jacob. This man has some confidence now. And in verses 36 to 42, he gives Laban a piece of his mind about what he thinks about him. And we, we see the Lord doing in the midst of this. And this is really important for you to see is that God is being Jacob's advocate here. God is protecting Rachel. God is building a case for Jacob. Now Jacob is able with confidence to be able to stand before Laban and recount all of the grievances over the years. You can feel the elevated tone of verses 36 to 42 as he speaks to Laban. 
What's really interesting about the whole narrative is this, particularly the hiding of the gods and all of the movement in the passage around that moment. Scholars have wrestled, what's the meaning of all of this? The text never says, oh, Rachel should not have lied. Rachel should not have done this. The text never, doesn't give us the freedom to draw that conclusion any more than it gives us the freedom to be able to say why it is she took the idols in the beginning. It just doesn't address the question. It's not interested in the question. It's very important when you're reading the Bible. It is such our tendency, isn't it, when we read the Bible, to bring to the Bible the questions we want it to answer and make it answer them even when it doesn't? rather than to recognize the questions it's trying to answer and make its questions ours. When we make the Bible's questions our questions, we're actually letting God take the lead in the reading of the Bible rather than our own desires to have our ears tickled with some fancy that we're curious about. What we see in this passage is the focus is on God. The whole story is focused on God. It's not really focused on Rachel. It's not really focused on Jacob. It's not really focused on Laban. It's about God being the one who provided. It's about God being the one who directed. It's about God being the one who protected. And so it's not surprising when you begin to understand that Laban's gods got sat on in the passage. There's an irony in this passage. The heart of this passage is a deep, deep irony. The God of Jacob is all over this passage. But Laban can't even find his gods. He can't even find his gods. In the moment that he needs his gods the most, he has no provision. He has no direction. He has no protection. He has no deliverance. And in what is most profoundly a disgrace, his gods get sat on in the passage. His gods are so powerless. They're like the statement of Psalm 95. All the gods of the world are as worthless idols. It's almost like Elijah with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Is your God sleeping? Can he not hear you? Laban, all of the gods who, the gods who would give you fertility, the gods that would give you prosperity, the gods that would give you victory, they don't seem to be working. There is a polemic in this passage. It's to expose the worthlessness of idolatry and the utter worthiness of worshiping the one true and living God. All over this passage we see it. It makes complete sense actually by the time you come to the end because this covenant at the very end, right? Laban, who says, these are my daughters and these are my flocks and... All of this is mine. Why don't we just make a covenant, though, and, and uh, I'll go my way, and you'll go your way, and you're like, oh, right, 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 okay. All right, let's do that. And he says to him, let's make a pile of stones. And Jacob is the first one to set a pillar stone 
remind you of anything? Genesis 28. It was there where Jacob had laid his head on a stone. And God had promised everything that was taking place in this passage. And in a, almost a, an ironic twist of the unfolding of history, Laban suggests that they create a pillar of stones. Why, Laban? That sounds like a great idea. It just so happens I have one right here. Bethel, the house of God. In very real sense, it wasn't just Rachel who sat on the gods of Laban. It was God who sat on the gods of Laban. He sat on them. He built his house right in the midst of the enemy of those pagan gods. It's a beautiful picture of the power, the strength, and the victory of Jacob's God, our God, the true and ultimate deliverer. Many scholars have noticed, and I think appropriately so, this passage mirrors something we're going to see later, later in the book of Exodus. We're going to see, like Jacob, one by the name of Moses, hear a call of God to go to the promised land, to go home. We're going to hear from someone like Jacob that he is to part from a house of slavery. Is Jacob in a house of slavery? You better believe he is. He's been for 20 years. And Moses is going to lead them out of that house of slavery. Like Jacob, they will depart with great wealth, having plundered who? Their enemy, Egypt. What has Jacob done? He's leaving with great wealth, having plundered who? The one who had opposed him, Laban. Like Jacob, Moses, through the power of God, will humiliate all of the gods of Egypt. The God of the Nile, the God of the field, all of them will be humiliated. And like Jacob, the living God will deliver them through amazing showings of power and divine intervention. Now, we, that should come as no surprise, friends, because that's really the pattern of the gospel. That we are a people who have been called by God to go home. We're in a pilgrim journey to get there. Like Jacob, like Israel, we're departing from a house of slavery. The house of slavery we're departing from is the one of sin that Paul refers to as shackles and a snare in which we are trapped. That house has been broken down by the power of Christ. Like Jacob and Israel, we're departing with great wealth and tremendous inheritance. We have all of the riches of the heavenly places at our disposal through the victory of Jesus Christ. Like Jacob and Israel, the enemy of our souls, the evil one, has been humiliated. For in the resurrection, Jesus has proven victory over the final enemy, which is death, that now has nothing upon those who are found in Christ. Like Jesus... And like Israel and like Jacob, we too walk in the path of all of those victories. And we are living with the hope of that future, with the reality of the God who promises to walk with us, to accomplish his mission, to accomplish his vision, and to know that the gods of this world are all been set on by Christ. 
And that at the end of the day, there will only be one testimony that will remain true. That every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, this passage really is a passage about getting home. And it teaches us how we, his people, long held captive by sin, broken, deceived, are being carried by our God, intervening on our behalf until the day where the new heavens and the new earth comes down from heaven and its glory and its victory shining upon the face of Jesus Christ. And we will know at that moment the stairway from heaven wasn't just a vision. It's a reality for every one of the believers in Christ. So friends, I don't know today what pressures you feel, but there's bound to be a lot of them. I feel them with you. There's probably moments where you don't feel provided for in the way that you think you ought to be provided for. There's probably moments where you don't feel directed in the way that you, you need to be directed. There are probably moments where you feel like you're not protected in the way that you need to be protected. Here, here's, here's my word to you. Don't judge God's faithfulness to his promises when you're in the middle of the story. Judge God's faithfulness by the revelation of the end of the story. And the end of the story is going to surprise you. For the greatest challenges and doubts that you've had in this life and through many moments throughout your walk with Christ, you're going to see just how foolish they were. Because you're going to see how faithful he is. He will provide for you. He will direct you. He will protect you. And he will deliver you. Father in heaven, Come and work these truths into our hearts. For we are a forgetful people. I am a forgetful man. There will be many times this next week that even these truths that come out of my mouth right now will be truths that I will struggle to believe. And I believe I'm in a community that I'm not alone in that struggle. And so, Lord, we would ask you, forgive us for ever doubting you, for losing sight of your promises, and in fear, listening to our fear, rather than in faith, listening to your word. Stir within our hearts a love for you, a trust of you, and an obedience to follow you. 